Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Carlos Hawthorne, staff writer, resident advisor. With more than a thousand production credits to his name, there aren't many corners of UK dance music untouched by Ashley Beadle. First made a name for himself in the early 80s with Shock Sound System, a collective of like-minded soul and funk fanatics who were one of the first crews to introduce house music to Notting Hill Carnival. Later, as Acid House toured through London, Beadle translated his transcendental club experiences into 12 inches, helping soundtrack a generation as part of Black Science Orchestra and Express 2. The latter, formed in partnership with Rocky and Diesel, would transform Beadle into a globe-trotting star at the turn of the millennium, riding the wave of success brought on by the David Byrne collaboration, Lazy. Since then, he's made music with reggae icon Horace Andy, released one of the most comprehensive edit compilations in memory, and started a new record label, Back to the World. Earlier this month, Beadle and his partner, veteran soul DJ Joe Wallace, dropped by our London office to discuss the finer points of his career, including why, even after 30 years in the game, there's still plenty to learn. There's a lot of history to get through. I thought we'd start by seeing where you are today. I mean, if you could just tell me, in terms of music, what um, normal day is like in, in Ashley Beadle in 2015. Well, a normal day for me consists of usually getting up, <laughs> which does help. Um, now, usually uh, sifting through old vinyl, getting ideas for creating new tracks, because I tend to work usually from old samples which give me ideas sort of the best period of music I think is like the 70s and the 80s and the 60s for warmth and my, my music is based on that a lot of that kind of era but I obviously bring it into the present day so yeah I sit there and go through lots of old samples get ideas file them which is always good and yeah and then it's then it's a case of uh, jumping on the train and off to the studio in Hastings St. Leonard's Warrior Square, to be precise, uh, to work with my partner, Darren Morris. You're always working on projects. Once you finish one, are you straight on the phone, kind of setting up the next studio session? Is it something that you like to constantly be doing? I can't help it. <laughs> I can't. I mean, I, I've learned, actually, I've learned now to kind of give myself a bit of space because beforehand, I find that if you're jumping from project to project too quickly, the quality of the project 
ultimately will suffer. And so now I've learnt, in most recent times actually, I've learnt to give it a bit of space, think about the project, listen to it, go back to it if needed, and then, you know, get the project finished properly. I mean, the sheer body of work you've amassed over 20, 30 years is pretty breathtaking. I mean, how's your attitude and approach to making music changed in that time, do you think? It hasn't changed as such, really. I mean, I still... So much love for music I've got inside me, you know. It's things... I'll hear something and it'll just blow me away, you know, and I'll get totally like, wow. You know, like the other day I was listening to the radio and um, I said to my partner, Joe, who's sitting to the room, left of me now, but I said to my partner, Joe, what's this? It was called um, Germain Somebody. It wasn't one of the Jacks, yeah, it was a brand new track, Germain Jenkins. It was a brand new track. And I thought, what is this? You know, it's on Radio 2 or something. But, uh, you know, things like that. And you think, wow, you know, I really want to go and make a track like that. So there's still plenty of new stuff out there and plenty of new producers, more importantly, that are making new music, which still blows me away. Are you someone who goes back and listens uh, to your old work much? I didn't used to because it used to be a bit of albatross around the neck, but I do now. And uh, there's a lot of old stuff that tickles me, especially the um, the Ballistic Brothers and stuff like that and the Black Science Orchestra. Very whimsical, quite a lot of humour yeah. I hear in those tracks now. Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and you've got to remember as well, we didn't have the budgets, we didn't have the money then. And we, you know, we were thinking... Oh, how are we going to get a horn section in there? Oh, we're going to have to build one out of samples. And that's what we did. Yeah. You know, so um, it's fascinating days for me to, to go and do all that stuff and more fascinating to be listening back to them. Absolutely. I mean, let's take it back to the 70s and 80s in London where you grew up living at home. Your dad was an avid record collector. Is that right? He was. He was, bless him. And uh, I can honestly say, and I've said it many a time in an interview. Yeah. You know, my father was the benchmark when it came to records. Well, my father and then his mates, obviously. But, you know, my, my dad's collection was amazing, you know. And it was just, uh, I'm still finding bits of his collection, which I'm looking at them thinking, dare you play, you know, um, Fairport Convention, Legion Leaf. Yeah, I've not played it yet. I've got my dad's copy sitting there, you know. And it's obviously, it's one of the greatest folk rock albums ever done, you know. And I'm sitting there thinking, right, I need to play that record. You know, and loads of Dylan stuff, and you know, I pretty much done all of his uh, soul and reggae. Right. <laughs> Did you inherit the entire collection? Majority of it. Majority of it. The, the, the sad thing was, my dad had most of the collection on vinyl, and then um, he sold the vinyl, and then exchanged them all for CD versions. I don't know why he did that. <laughs> I think it's something to do with him needing the space. Sure, yeah. You know, but he, I think he realised eventually, he said, oh, I shouldn't have sold the vinyl, but hey, you know. It's the problem that yeah. happens to every... He wasn't collector. advised correctly, put it like that. <laughs> so music was very much a part of everyday life yes, in the house, yes. playing all the time. I mean, you've obviously turned into a very eclectic producer yourself, with many very varied tastes. Yeah. Is that where your kind of open-mindedness comes yes. from? Yes, open-minded indeed. You kind of made your first breaks, I suppose, through the shock sound system. Yes. Which obviously was at Notting Hill Carnival, but just before you kind of made it as a, as a performer there, I wanted to talk about as someone of Caribbean descent, I imagine you would have been going to Notting Hill every year. Is that the case? Yeah. I mean, you know, like my mum said, five years of age, she started, I think, taking me down to the carnival. She had, she never liked it too much herself, really, because um, it was too crowded. <laughs> she, right. she used to get claustrophobia. But, you know, I was always going down to carnival and I loved the original vibe of the carnival was fantastic. We used to have all the bands and the, the big sound systems right underneath the flyover. Right. And obviously, 
when the 1976 riot happened, where me and my dad were, which is incredible in, in a bad way, but that when that riot happened, we managed to get out of that in time. Wow. Um, but when we saw the, the footage on the news and that, we were like, whoa. And it then kind of really changed a lot with a bit more of a heavy police presence. And then it opened up again after house music, right. which is interesting. You know, it got a lot more freer and they were like, oh, this is good. Yeah, you mentioned there the riots. I mean, it has always had a kind of slightly dicey reputation. Was that always the case? Yeah. I mean, there's no two ways about it because, <laughs> you know, you're talking about God knows how many people in the middle of Labrick Grove. You're not talking about just people from, from London here. You're talking people from Birmingham, you know, from all over that were coming down to Notting Hill Carnival. Some of them were coming down there looking for the bad times. So there you go. Was it a lot smaller than it is today? It was a lot smaller, yeah. I haven't been to the, the newest, the, the latest batch of carnivals for a while now because it just isn't for me. I, I think a lot of the colour for me has been lost out of it now, yeah. A lot more corporate and, you know. And the, the police presence, as you mentioned, is so heavy these days. Yeah, it's just ridiculous, yeah. So let's talk about Shock Sound System. How did you first start performing at Carnival? Well, Shock Sound System was um, started by the Zephyrin family, which is Dean and Stanley, two brothers, who got it from their brothers, elder brothers. So wow. they, they inherited it, basically. And the sound system would come out of, um, now let's get this right, was it Kilburn, which was northwest London, something like that? And Cecil, Peters, Paul Denton, myself, and Ricky Light, L-Y-T. Ricky, who now sadly has passed on. We all got together. I think Paul and Ricky came later, but it was Cecil, me, Dean and Stanley had the initial shock sound system and then everyone kind of, you know, we all came on together. Like most sound systems, you you get a growing number of members, MCs, box boys, you know. Certainly. And those first few instances that you were playing the house records, I mean, what was the reaction like from the crowd? At first it was strange because, you know, you're thinking there's a lot of that crowd were like, what are these records? Because we knew about them from... Um, and I'm going to put my hand up for him as the master of house in, in the UK, was Jazzy M. Now, a lot of people don't know that because, you know, he had My Price Records in Croydon and it was Jasper the Vinyl Junkie and Jazzy M running that shop. That was the first place we used to go to buy house records. All the DJs went there to buy house records, you know. So we were, so Croydon, what was Croydon then? Jesus, you wouldn't want to go there, do you know what I mean? So we're getting these records and, and literally bringing them back, doing the house parties, and then obviously a lot of these records were being aired for the first time from our end at Notting Hill Carnival. Not necessarily with us, but also with KCC, yeah. which was Keith Lawrence. You know, the rest of the sounds were kind of soul, hip-hop, do you know what I mean, and all that. But we were, I definitely I'd say, one of the sounds to bring house music into Carnival. Were you, I mean, as it became more and more popular, did that became, were you exclusively playing just house? Yeah, we kind of went that way a bit. I mean, and then we kind of went the way of hip-hop for a way. We got a bit more militant. Okay. <laughs> you know, we got a bit bored with being peace and love and we thought, come on, let's get the guns out. <laughs> Obviously, you're involved in a fair few very popular projects around the turn of the 90s and kind of, as I said, house kicked in. That's kind of yeah. when you started making a name for yourself. What was your first interaction with the movement like? Was it as a clubber? I think, yeah, as a clubber, I think. I would say so because I... I've got to get my timelines right here. I was told about one club, which was Confusion, which has never been talked about that much, but it's on that, it's on that website, Bring the Noise, which seems to be up online now, where everyone's telling their stories. But Confusion was the first club, I think, which brought together 
like-minded people who were into the house music and almost proto-Balearic would be described. And the, one of the greatest DJs who was playing there was Kid Bachelor. And the MC was E-Mix, um, Keith Franklin from KCC, Leslie Lawrence from Bang the Party. Sorry, Kid Bachelor was from Bang the Party as well. Myself, I was involved in the the odd bod room, right. <laughs> playing like Jimi Hendrix and God knows what else. But it was fantastic. And it started off at a place called Bill Stickers, which I think is where Ronnie Scott's is now, that okay. street there. Greek, Greek Street. Greek Street, yeah. yeah. And then it moved over to the venue in Shaftesbury, Shaftesbury Avenue, which is in a basement. Amazing, amazing club. And it's a shame because no one talks about confusion like they talk about shum. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, I think history needs to be corrected slightly. Nikki Trax, who was the, who was the main girl running this thing, amazing woman, absolutely amazing. She, she brought something very, very powerful and very good, I think, to, to London. I mean, it wasn't before long that you started making the tracks. Yeah. Was it, was it a case of, right, I'm hearing this music, now I want to... Yeah, I mean, we were desperate to go and make a record. And, and funny enough, things were falling on our lap. We were like, wow, you know, we'd met up with Ten City. Noel and Morris Watson had started uh, their night, Delirium, in London, where I think the first night they, they were, people were throwing bottles at them for playing house music, I think. But they'd started their, their night, Delirium, and all of a sudden, you know, there was this... Um, group of people who were coming together to play house music and, and also starting to make it as well. So I think maybe Bang the Party maybe came first. I'm not sure. But we, I think we made what I would call the first British take on garage music, US right. Garage, which was Give Me Back Your Love. And we done a PA of that in um, High on Hope, which was Norman Jay's night at um, Dingwalls. And we supported Blaze. Wow. Good memory. <laughs> it's a memory, yeah. I mean, it's well documented the from the public's point of view how how much it was um, all about free love and everything. I wonder what it was like being inside the machine, making the records, playing the parties. Every, to be honest with you, everything was just a whirl, you know, because obviously, let's not say, you know, you've got to say one thing. To have a movement, you need the drug to go with it, right? Let's be honest about that. So everything that was going on, hand in hand in, was acid house ecstasy. Do you know what I mean? Which propels a movement, literally. And everything was happening so fast. You know, it's incredibly fast. We didn't even think about burnout at a point. It was just about making this music, you know. But the one thing that has lasted, I think, was that house music as an art form has lasted. It's beautiful. Still love it now, you know. So there's legs still still left in it yet as, a, as an art form. As a way of going out to enjoy it, I don't know. I'm, I'm not quite sure what's happening there at the moment. I'm really not. I mean, looking over that period, Black Science Orchestra, Express 2, Ballistic Brothers, so many hits. You hear stories of the Masters at Work and the Hit Factory. It kind of feels like you had a kind of golden touch yourself at that time. Listen, let's, let's get one thing straight, right? <laughs> Louis and Kenny and Louis, Louis and Kenny, you know, it says whatever. You know, Masters at Work, that, that it was funny, actually, because um, at one point, me and Kenny Dope were, like, sparring. You know, we were sparring in a good way. And he was he was literally nicking snares and, and little loops from me, and I was doing the same. And, uh, in fact, we'd, we'd, we'd actually swapped a couple of remixes with them. They were really good people, really, really good people. And I think there was a lot of love for us 
cunning from them guys. I, for some reason, and this is with no ego, but for some reason, the American DJs like me. And I used to go over there on my own a lot, you know. And a very special story, which gives you an idea, was, God bless him, you know, Frankie Knuckles. And I'd gone over to America to the Cheetahs Club, which Barbara Tucker's club, you know, beautiful people, Barbara Tucker. And one of the guys in there was another great DJ, Benji Candelario, uh, who got me talking to uh, Frankie Knuckles who had a Friday night residency there, you know. Amazing night, and it was kind of like Louis Vega would be DJing, David Cole from Clavillas and Cole would be on keyboards, place would be jumping, and here I am talking to Frankie Knuckles, right? So the record that was kind of breaking for me at that point was the Black Science Orchestra, New Jersey Deep. But Benji Candelario said to me, no, 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 no. It's, he said the record that was, was broke you here was Black Science Orchestra, where were you, the first one? You know, this is just happening for you now. But it's a, where, I said, what, where were you? Broke here. He said, yeah, Frankie broke it. And Frankie was standing like there. And I was like, whoa. I said, well, you broke that record here. And he was like, yeah, you know, very modest. And I just turned around to Frankie and I just said, look, Frankie, thank you so much for breaking that record. And he turned around to me and said, Ashley, Thank you so much for making it. <laughs> That's an amazing story. That's true. It was playing in the background when you walked into Cheetahs. Cheetahs, yeah. So the tune was actually playing. And it was like, hang on, what's going what's on What's going here? on here? <laughs> amazing. Yeah. You released a lot of your music on Junior Boys Out. Yeah, they were, they were good people, man. How did your relations start up with Stephen and Terry? Uh, haphazardly. Terry, basically, let's get... <laughs> I've got to laugh about this. There was a particular interview done with Terry... And there was, a, there was a, an amazing series or drama series set in San Francisco about the kind of yuppie gay guys that went out on the party scene, you know. And I remember them interviewing Terry and he said, um, I'm a gay man in a gas fitter's body. <laughs> and um, basically, you know, I love Terry and all those guys from day one because I think we were all desperate to be like, you know, New York, San Fran. Chicago, we wanted to be there. Yeah. You know, we just wanted to be there. And uh, for us, you know, I think we were just trying to recreate. I mean, why would Terry Farley go and make a record called Fire Island? Right. Do you know what I mean? Think about it, you know. It's like, you know, and then you had Express 2 and Music Express and this and that. Ours was a more kind of Euro, European, US take split into two, you know. But Junior Boy's own and and Boys Own itself, they, they were the perfect labels to put those records out on. I don't think there were any labels to match them at the time. You know, people looked at those labels as like, you know, if you got a Junior Boys Own product in your hand, you had a good piece of product. Definitely. So it's great. So you're actually going to America at the time and kind of bringing back yeah, those experiences. Br- mate, bring, bring back records as well. Yeah, of Just course. bring back, you know, bring back amazing disco records. And I was sampling the hell out of them. <laughs> and were you hosting... A lot of the American guys in London as well. Yeah, well, those days it was very much the Ministry of Sound kind of had to hold on that because they were very expensive, the US guys. You know, they, 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 were, they were milking it for all it's worth. But saying that, and I don't mean that in a bad way, you know, the money was there. The money was there. But, you know, we had a network of shops to support it, i.e. Catch a Groove, Black Market. You know, all these shops were around that could support the house movement, unfortunately, they're not anymore, you know? And so hence, that's why I suppose the house music has changed. But there were so many shops that were selling house music and 
the back end of it, you know, including British house music as well. Um, we touch on Express Two there, and after a kind of run of successful hits in the nineties, it went a bit quiet, and then you came back with Musicism. Yes, in two thousand and two. I mean, what were the circumstances that led to that album being made? <laughs> I think it was a case of we'd run out of ideas, really. You know, and that's easy enough. I mean, there's only so many hits you can have. You know, it lasted as long as it could, but we just got rejuvenated again. You know, I think I can't think it was Rocky or Diesel or might have been both of them had gone to the Miami Winter Music Conference and they said, oh, we went to see Danny Tanaglia, man, and there was these mental smoke machines. There you hey. go, smoke machine. I didn't go to that. So, you know, all of a sudden it's like, hey, we've got a tune. Let's make a tune called Smoke Machine, you know. I'm a little unclear on... Um, your kind of different roles. They would DJ together, but you'd all work in the studio together, is that right? Yeah, event, well, originally it was meant to be Rockin' Diesel, and I was the silent partner. Right. Because <laughs> I had Black Science Orchestra. Right. Terry was kind of like orchestrating it a little bit. Terry Farley, he was like, right, Rockin' Diesel going to be um, Express 2. You're the silent, but, but eventually I said, what's the point? You know, but um, the weird thing is, Rockin' Diesel are actually called, it's their real names, Darren Rock and Darren House. Right. You can't make it up. So I said, why don't you call them Rock to House? And Terry's like, oh, maybe. But, you know, Express 2, Terry said, sounds like Mark Moore's group. What's it called again? Um, S-Express. So he was like, you know, let's call it, let's call it Express 2 because it sounds like S-Express. And Mark Moore's a very good friend of mine. And he always gives me a nod and a wink every time I see him about that. So, I mean, that album, it definitely sounds like a bit of a departure towards kind of really big room, tribal, maybe yeah. kind of more Ibiza-geared club tracks. I didn't hear so much of the funk song disco that made up the early No, it was, it, was, it was geared towards the, what the sound was at the time, which was Danny Tanaglia. Danny Tanaglia ruled. Do you know what I mean? He was amazing. And it was that big tribal and Junior Vasquez with the tribal label. You know, we were, we were going to like the, the tribal nights in America, um, a sound factory in America to go and see Vasquez play. Incredible. I mean, and what were the, I imagine the album did pretty well. What were the kind of repercussions of that? Did you kind of get to live any of that superstar DJ? Oh God, yeah. You know, it was, it, well, when Lazy hit. Right. I mean, that for me was a dream come true. I mean, it was, it, it, it was wearing, I mean, because Rocky pointed out, oh, I just wanted to make an underground club record. He actually said that. Yeah. And then I think when it hit, I think all of us were like, oh my God, you know, kept off the top of the charts by Gareth, whatever he's named off. With Gareth, in the Gate. <laughs> yeah, Gareth, Gareth Gates. Gates. <laughs> but, you know, we still sold more records than him. But point being is, you know, that, that record was, kept us up there for a long while, you know, a year of touring and, you know, all the rest of it. You know, we, had, we made a good living in a good way. You know, and, I, I, and I'll take my hat off and give thanks that people appreciated that album, you know. You've collaborated with a lot of people over over your career, but what was it like working with David Byrne? Genius. Genius, because we were all huge talking head fans. It's funny, actually, a lot of people that are into house music, you can pretty much, in this country of our era, pretty much can say, yeah, we love talking heads. It's funny. So him deciding to go, yay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this vocal for you, was brilliant. But then when he actually sent the vocals back after two weeks, I mean, it's incredible. And we got this song about a dance record about some cat being lazy. Right. And we sat there and we listened to it and we thought, is this guy for real? Do you know what I mean? And I went, yeah, we just, let's, let's go with it. You know, he's being lazy. Great. And it just, the imagery was just fantastic. 
So he just went straight with it straight away. Amazing. Record- so he sent you the vocals. Yeah, he recorded. He, yeah, he recorded the. We well, basically, the story. This is the story. Myself and Rocky did a vocal that said, "I've got your number, baby." I've got your number, baby, baby, or something. It was just a little, almost like a Prince thing. And we sent it over to him. And he completely erased that <laughs> and sent back this lyric about being lazy. And that was it. Let's talk about your re-edits, because it's another kind of major part of your <laughs> no, career. Jay. Yeah. In a short interview, I heard you reference the history and politics of the re-edit. I thought if you, wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I th- it's a funny one, really, because it's like... I don't like to upset people, you know, obviously, but, you know, with the whole, f- with the re-edit thing, the re-edit thing at the moment is a big seller. You go in a record shop, you know, it's four or five lanes, if you like, of re-edits going in there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're big sellers now, you know, and I think that this kind of been really overused, but in the other way, it's, it's a good way for kids to hear old music. But the problem I think is what's going on is that they're listening to these old tunes being re-edited, but they're not going back to listen to what the other tunes the original tunes are about. So the re-edit, to a point, is the actual original track. Do you get me? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So there's not enough taught about all this. I think there should be bloody, you know, schools for re-edits or whatever, you know. And then you've got people like Greg Wilson, who come from that re-edit school, who are trying to say, look, this is how it comes. This is how you've got to do it. And showing them away. And Harvey, for instance, and people like that. Myself. So you've got the, the two schools, if you like. But... You know, the, there's kids, I've, I've spoken to kids and I said, what kind of music are you into? And they go, re-edits. Hilarious. Wow. They actually go re-edits as, as it's a genre, like soul or reggae. That's bizarre. It is bizarre. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to come out of that, you know. But I think I put my mark on it with that last album I did, Message in the Music, which I did for Harmless Records. And for me, that, as far as I'm concerned, I've drawn a leg line in the sand for the re-edit as something, look, these are what I can do now. I've finished and I'm going to start something new. And the idea of what I want to do something now is to put something back into the pot, if you like, which is to do a label based on the proceeds go to charity. And that's where the re-edits will go, but they will be cleared. And we're going to call the label All Cleared. So nice. that's, that's where we want to go now. Well, yeah, because I had prostate oh, wow. cancer and I got all clear. So there you go. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Message in the Music took four years to make, which is a long time to be working on a project. I mean, yeah. why did it take so long? Clearances mainly, just getting, you know, getting the business clearances and also turning around sometimes and looking at the track and thinking, mm, this isn't quite there, needs to be tweaked a little bit more. I mean, I was a little bit hurt actually, because when the album actually came out, I can't remember his name now, Ian C or somebody went up on Amazon and proceeded to just tear me apart. You know, saying how oh, these edits, edits were rubbish and this, they, he didn't know the work that had gone into him, didn't know the feel. They were done as proper edits. They weren't just like, I'm sticking these at the ceiling and let's see what happens. Do you know what I mean? They were done, they, you know, some of them maybe just had an eight bar or 16 bar feel, but they made the, they made the track change slightly, made the feel of the track. I was making some of the tracks shorter because they were too long. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, just bring them into play again that they fitted into a club environment. Over the years, you've run many labels, but now your current project seems to be back to the world. Yeah. What is new about it? What sets it apart from your previous work? It's just, the trouble with me was I, I just can't sit still. So what I've decided to do with Back to the World, I want it to be a dance stroke house music label, more so in the house thing, but it's got to be of divine quality. Do you know what I mean? It's got to be good, you know? So now... 
the tracks I'm putting it out on Back to the World, they're going to be well thought about. And, you know, and we've done like already, I think we're up to number four. We'll be up to number four. Is it? Yeah. Okay, number five. <laughs> Glad Joe's here. <laughs> but number five. But, um, you know, with the first, re first release was Adamski, you know, Absolute Hero. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's still trickling through. We're going to relaunch that because the people didn't quite get it first time around. But it's a genius record. Do you know what I mean? Absolute genius record. And then we've got the Crazy Gods, which is myself and Darren Morris, my partner, which is basically Masters at Work. Again, that vibe. Do you know what I mean? Just bringing that whole humour and happiness back to sampling again and, you know, and clearing samples, which is great, you know. And then um, we've got track I did with Rob Zinger, or, or sorry, Earl Zinger, which is Rob, Gall Rob Gallagher from Galliano which is, I'm very happy with that. When that comes out, I'm hoping that's going to go off big time. Do you know what I mean? And then we've got Waterson, amazing singer, you know, and I can only describe him as a torch house singer, if you like, a, a man who's carrying a great weight, <laughs> but amazing singer. And, um, you know, I want to get into him a couple of 12s, EP maybe, if, and then hopefully we'll get an album out of him as well. You know, you mentioned Darren Morris there, and you've worked with people throughout your career. I mean, what is it about working with others that that brings the best out of it you? It just brings. It does. I can't. I'm no man is an island, you know. And I, I'm not very good on my own, to be honest with you. I've done it a couple of times. Don't get me wrong. I've worked on uh, Black Jazz Chronicles, which was uh, post separation album. <laughs> everyone needs one. Yeah, everyone needs one. Yeah. So, um, but I kind of done that on my own, and I, I got a bit morose with that, you know. But uh, funny enough, I listened back to that the other day, and there was two or three tracks on it. I thought, hey, it's all right, actually. They're not bad. So it's a case of just the dynamism in the studio. Yeah, yeah. Darren is fantastic to bounce off as well because he's like the utter space cadet, you know. And we've got we've got an album coming actually, which is a project that's been long time sort of hanging around called Africans on Mars, which is going to be amazing. And we've got, um, hopefully, Kurt Wagner from Lamb Chop doing a narration for that. It's a bit like the War of the Worlds, that vibe, but um, ele electric jazz, yeah, but better. Wow. Yeah. All these projects, I mean, how do you, you wake up one day and you think, I want to try something clubby, I want to try something down-tempo. How does it it's work? It's what pop, it pops into my head. I mean, you know, I think I'm just one of a, a vessel, if you like, you know. I sort of get up, get up in the morning and it's like, voomph, you know, because music's in the air, right? That's what I honestly believe. You know, it's not us, no ego. It's, in, it's actually in the air and we pull it down and we create from it, you know. So it's all good, you know. It's like Joe's got a label, Ramrock, the reggae label, and she's there bouncing around all day thinking up ideas about it and titles and combinations and who's going to work with who. Black Saints. Yeah, and then, oh, yeah, Black Saints. is another, But that Black Saints is another project. That's probably not going to happen for a little while, but that's something that needs to be done because the older I get, the more of a man of faith I become. And oh, really? I think that happens to a lot of people, yeah. And I don't mean that in a pious way, but you're beginning to see outside your world and what's going on in the cosmos a bit, do you know what I mean? And... Uh, yeah, I think the Black Saints is going to be a very interesting project once I get that off the ground. I saw that you were selling um, a small portion of your record collection on Discogs. <laughs> yes. They're funny, only funny bits though, aren't they? <laughs> how, many, just, how, how big is your collection currently? Um, not that big. I've been selling bits off and chunks on that, but yeah, about 15, yeah. yeah. I mean, one record uh, in particular caught, caught my eye, which is the two people 
Stop Leave My Heart Alone, which was going for... Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just caught my eye and I was looking yeah. through. I was looking at your Facebook page and on it you said 2014 was a learning curve. Yeah. I wonder what you meant by that. A lot of things, really. Inwardly, you know, I wasn't very well, you know, and I won't go into the whole thing, but I wasn't well. And I think being not well allowed me to sit back and look and see, okay, what do you need to do with your life here? Do you know what I mean? So I did all that. I did all that and I had some good, lovely people around me, family and Joe and, you know, they managed to, you know, everyone got me well and they got me back on the track again and got me back into my music again because, you know, I lost faith for a little while, do you know what I mean? But I was, it's all good now and um, I've learned now to take my time. You don't need to rush, do you know what I mean? The world's not going to spin away from you. It's gonna, always going to be there. So that's all good. I mean, do you envision a time that you ever hang up your studio headphones and... Probably not, actually, because, um, you know, a great man who I, I, I admire immensely, who's he actually hung up his studio headphones the other, the other day, is Robert Wyatt. Okay. Now, he was with um, Soft Machine. Amazing, amazing musicians, worked with everybody. And he did probably the greatest version of the tune Shipbuilding, which was written by Elvis Costello. And uh, I can't remember the other guy um, who wrote that, but... Uh, yeah, Shipbuilding's an amazing record. But he hung up his headphones the other day and I felt quite sad, you know, but I think he's doing it out of he just needs a break and he's had enough. But I think I'd still, I'd still be working right up to the day, I think. Amazing. You know what I mean, yeah. Have you been doing music continually for that whole time? You've never done anything else? It's been whether working, DJing or... Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Always been, you know, I've always been out there DJing, always been out there. If I'm not DJing, I'm in the studio, you know, and then... I do have holidays, don't worry. I do take a holiday. You've got, you've got to have a holiday or else you go mad. You know, you would do. These days, Express 2, it's just Rocky and Dee's. I just wanted yeah. to know what led to you leaving the group. It, it, it was time to me for leave. It was, it, I could, there was no way on this earth I could continue doing Express 2 purely because I had too many other projects. And Rocky, in his infinite wisdom, said, Ash, we need you to, to concentrate to be on board for this, you know? And I said, I can't, mate. Horace Andy. Yeah, I was doing an album project with him. So I had to do that and I wanted to do it. You know, well, I couldn't let the chance go. So it's one of the things, but we're still great friends. You know, we're still great friends, but they, they just do the Express too now. And I think it's a, it's better now anyway. If they can, because Rocky, I think, wanted to go back to more of a house vibe. You know, take it back to house, underground house. And... Me, I think, you know, when you get two heads sort of fighting each other for what the music should be like, and I was always, oh, let's do it more eclectic and, you know, whatever. Anyway, it's, it's worked out anyway. It's good. By the side of the stage when I first saw them, Catching glimpses of turntables when bodies move in that accidental synchronicity, we all smiled back and forth as that motion was joined by other dancing figures. Steve doing that East London boogie, Bristol boys a lean up, powerhouse girls, just ghost dancers. Every record brought more nods and friends, old tunes, new ones, as this is new by degree or accent, they don't care because they're just ghost dancers, ghost dancing. Some dealing in sensation and melancholy by the door, 
two grams of euphoria and someone had a packet of ideas. No one ever had a lie. Just walk. We don't want everybody knowing. When you get in, go over by the left of the DJ. What's Jimmy doing in the speaker? Thought he moved to Brighton. Underground legend. With Michael dancing his dance as the sun come up. 
It's a small farm by the M25, still there every time you close your eyes. Just go stars. shadows, the babble griots reciting unknown histories, the dancers have changed and now make way, from this weekend to last weekend, all just ghost dancers, ghost dancers. Ghost dancers. Ghost dancers. Ghost dancers. Ghost dancers. 